Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by Coach Brad Sims. Coach Brad and I had a great conversation around functional training and how the way we train is important in order to help us with the random things that we encounter in life and also help us with the things that we encounter in obstacle course racing. Whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, I think you will find this information highly valuable. So let's tune in. Coach Brad, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm great, Brand. How are you doing? I'm doing amazing. Thank you. Should I call you Doc? You don't have to. <laughs> okay. You do not have to. Uh, so I'm excited to talk to you. We had a great conversation last weekend, just getting to know each other. And I absolutely love what you're doing with your training, um, focusing really on those functional movements, on dynamic, on multiplanar, getting the body moving in all directions. So that's why I really wanted to focus on today is just what just essentially what functional movement is and how we train this and why it's important to our daily life. But first, let's get into how did you get into this realm of coaching and these theories that or these techniques that you use? Well, I was actually, I had done several different careers uh, out of college, mostly sales-based. And I had done about eight years in the auto industry. I sold Acuras for five years. <laughs> of all things, right? And then I did about three years as a service writer, also for Acura. But it was when I moved in with a girlfriend of mine and I had uh, transferred to another Acura dealer that things were very different in the way they were run. And I guess the style that I was used to working at, at the old place didn't fly here. So I was let go after about four months and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was kind of like, I don't really want to go back into that industry. Like just because I'm comfortable there, like now's the time. If I'm going to change, now's the time to do it. And almost on a dare, a friend of mine told me that he thought I would make a good personal trainer. And, that, and I, I was like, I really, I never, like that never occurred to me at all. Like I'd always enjoyed fitness and working out, but never occurred to me to become a trainer. I was like, I'll tell you what, I'll look into that and I'll get back to you. <laughs> so yeah, I, basically I talked to several friends of mine who were already in the industry and kind of weighed their advice. And there seemed to be a consensus that it was a pretty cool field to be in. They certainly enjoyed what they were doing. And I had, this is going to seem weird, like almost unrelated, but I had about 15 years of theater background college and community theater. Um, I, I can't dance, but I can act and I can sing. And for better or for worse, the gym became almost like theater in the sense that like, I get to help people. I get to not enter. I don't want to say entertain them. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite sure where I, where I was going with that thought, but <laughs> it, it became something that I enjoyed like theater except you get paid, right? <laughs> Most theater jobs, they don't pay. And even though I wasn't singing or acting, I found that I enjoyed teaching. I guess that's, that's, that's the ultimate point of that. And I didn't realize how much until I started doing training more and more. 
And so I decided to become a personal trainer. I did a NASM certification. And as I was unemployed at the time anyway, I was able to finish the whole course in about 13 weeks. And then I got uh, my first job was at a New York sports club. And then I worked for Robert Wood Johnson uh, Fitness and Wellness. They had several gym facilities, I think like six at the time. This one was in Scotch Plains and they were hospital affiliates with RWJ Hospital, which is like a big uh, hospital chain out, out here on the East Coast. And they were really into um, FMS, if, if you know the functional movement screen. So you absolutely had to learn that as one of their trainers and you had to implement the test with the box and it was kind of cool. Like it, it certainly taught you some basic anatomical knowledge and how it related to exercise and how exercises could benefit movements that you found were maybe less than desirable in that screen. But on the other hand, it became too, like if you looked at it from the client's perspective, they were kind of like, am I being tested? Like, what if, is this, what if I fail? What does it mean that I didn't do so well? What, am, what score am I trying to get? And, th and th I found that that was kind of a negative thing for them because for people who are intimidated about working out, they don't necessarily want to feel that kind of pressure. They're just like, make this fun for me. Help me get to my goals. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I think there's a lot of uh, truth to that. Like, you, you know, basically you got to keep it simple, right? Then, yeah, so I just kind of went on from there. I, I worked at some other different gyms in my area. And then this opportunity, oh, and then I got Spartan SGX certified. So level one SGX in, let me look on my thing on the wall here. 2014 <laughs> it was, I can't, I couldn't even remember. So um, that was down in DC and my wife and I made a weekend out of it. We went down there. And I got certified. She went, treated herself to the spa. <laughs> and uh, I had a really good time. And I had really very little experience running obstacle races. My first one ever was a warrior dash in 2014. But I had seen a friend of mine run a Tough Mudder in New Jersey in 2011, I believe it was. 2011 or 2012. And that was the first time I'd even heard of an obstacle race. I was like, whoa, this is a thing. Like this was a very flat course. It's done on a, a motocross track. Um, so the only hills are like man-made hills, <laughs> but they were able to build monkey bars over and, and water pits and things like that. And I was like, this looks kind of cool, but it still had never occurred to me. Like this was a thing or certainly wasn't a thing that I was going to coach because I was still working in the car industry at that time. So that kind of opened my eyes a little bit. And once I tried the warrior dash and it, it's, it's kind of like, it's less like a high pressure run and more like a big party. <laughs> you know, it's all about the beer and the fuzzy Viking hat at the end. And you can do it with your friends and just have a good time. And uh, I, I enjoyed that. And I went back the next year and then I started doing Spartans in 2015 don't think I got my first trifecta until 2017. So a Spartan trifecta is when you do a sprint distance 
a super and a beast. So roughly four mile, eight mile, and 12 plus all in one year. And that was, uh, uh, it just built from there. It just kind of snowballed and I, I got more and more into it and I was doing it with a buddy of mine and I, I was terribly slow. Like he had to keep doubling back on the trail to check on me <laughs> and help me through the obstacles. I couldn't climb a rope for my life. <laughs> like I really, really struggled. So skip forward to about 2015, this opportunity came up. I, I looked to see if in my area, were there any other Spartan SGX coaches? And I found this guy, Brian. Brian was on the verge of opening an obstacle and CrossFit based gym right in my area. And I interviewed with him several times and eventually became one of the trainers who would run his obstacle fitness classes. We were calling it SGX for a while. But then we realized that the term, no one knows what SGX is. It stands for Spartan Group Exercise, but nobody knows that. So we had to rename it something less mysterious, A, and less intimidating, B. So we just started calling it Obstacle Fitness. And it became kind of a blend of Spartan Race Obstacle and a little bit of Ninja Warrior type stuff. So he, he had built some pretty cool obstacles. We had a spear throw out back. We had a little AstroTurf strip. You could push, push and pull sleds. We had a rock climbing wall. We had a 75 foot long uh, series of monkey bars that went up and down. We had, um, we had Hercules hoists. We had Atlas stones. We had rope climbs, pretty much all the basic stuff. Uh, we even had some vertical walls to climb. And that was, I'm, I'm actually still teaching there. It's, it's a fantastic place and it's very, very big. It's, we started with 7,000 square feet. So it's a, it's a big, uh, like a long warehouse. It's actually in a, uh, like an office complex. It doesn't even look like a gym from the outside. And yeah, the rest is history. I've, so I've been teaching there a little over four years and uh, it's a nice space to run stuff and i and i still feel that obstacle racing although it's come along about i think 10 years since it started ultimately nine, nine or ten years they uh, i feel like it's still growing and i also feel like my speciality if you will is more with new students i don't work with a lot of top athletes and i don't know if that's be i feel that i'm capable of helping them but i feel that a lot of people who are naturally gifted athletes, especially at obstacle racing, I think don't feel like they need coaches. But that's my honest opinion that they can do it on their own or they can look stuff up online. And, and that may or may not be true. That's a debate for another time. But uh, I still remember what it was like to be a newbie. And the fact that I've never been in a, you know, an elite racer or a really fast runner for certain makes me feel like I still identify with, the newbies in the mindset and how do you get over the initial intimidation? And the only answer I can come up with is you come and try my class and I show you that this stuff is really fun and different. And it's not just curling dumbbells in the gym. Like you get to use your whole body. It's a small group environment. So it's, it's really fun. And you, 
if you, if, if you were the competitive type, I'll put you with someone who's, you know, of a similar skill set, and you guys can compete and go at it. You can do suicide runs, whatever. If you're more the a little more shy and a little more intimidated, then the goal for me becomes showing you multiple ways to do uh, the obstacle or the movement that we're working on at the, at the moment. Because in the race, if you, it's not good to only be only have one method of conquering that obstacle. There's usually at least two ways, sometimes more. And you want to have tools in your toolbox. Spartan Race, for example, might throw three or four back-to-back -back grip obstacles and with virtually no running in between them. And your hands and your forearms are completely shot. And yet you're expected to climb this rope. So what is the secret to that? <laughs> it all depends on what order. But there are... There are certainly like at least two ways I know of to, to rope climb. And we have ways of helping you train the component movements. How do you hang on to a, a, any vertical object? For one thing, it's very different from like holding on a pull-up bar, or monkey bar. So on that note, as far as the different, thinking about the different obstacles, are there kind of like, a handful of skills that we can learn that carry over to the majority of the obstacles or kind of how are you training some of that stuff? Because obviously you can't have every single obstacle in a gym. Of course not. No. So we, we train the ones that are used the most and the movements that you would use in almost every race are going to be squatting, lunging, crawling, swinging, and climbing. Now, when I, so to kind of expand on that, if I were to say, so, so take climbing, for example, <laughs> you can climb a rope and you can climb uh, an eight foot vertical wall. It's going to be a very, very different type of movement for each one. With a rope climb, one of the big secrets that pe people who have trouble climbing ropes haven't figured out yet is that you're switching between hands and feet and the feet need to be even more on point, uh, more, more heavily used than the hands because your hands won't, your grip won't support you for more than a few seconds at a time. So you transfer your weight to holding for two or three seconds while you adjust your feet, but then your feet are there to push you up the rope. In fact, the way I describe it to my students is you literally stand up the rope. Mm -hmm. Once you can find whatever technique gets that rope under one of your feet and above the other one, so you can compress it between your feet, you, they're, they're like blown away how much easier it is to climb this rope. And oh my God, I'm barely using my hands. Exactly. Right. You know, <laughs> save that for something else. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But and then if you're going to talk about climbing an eight foot wall, so some people, you know, on a low wall, it's pretty, pretty apparent that anyone can sort of put their hands on the top, swing one leg over, maybe straddle the wall and then swing the other leg over. But as the walls get higher and higher, if you're not six foot tall like me, then you're going to have a little bit of difficulty. Some of the walls have a step at the very bottom that sticks out a couple inches. You can at least put your toe on and try to then swing one leg up and over. 
But if the wall doesn't have that, then you need yet another technique. Now, people with a really good squat jump height, jump squat, might be able to jump high enough that they can then do effectively a muscle up where they are pushing themselves up the wall, like pushing the wall down below them. And then they can, they could theoretically put uh, their elbows over the top. What usually happens there is they bruise the crap out of their ribs, but it works. You know, they're just trying to, to get over it. The most efficient method in my opinion is to, assuming you can grab the top of the wall, just like the inverted wall, you have to put your feet flat on the wall. And I find that because the anatomy of the hip sockets on people are all a little bit different, but they tend to be able to squat deeper when their feet are wider apart. So I have them go like wider than shoulder width and they're essentially sitting in a really deep squat position. So I'm, you guys can't see this, but for, for Brianne, so this is me sitting in a squat on the ground. I'm going to turn that 90 degrees, except I'm holding the wall, but now my feet are also on the wall, toes pointed up, right? If you can visualize that. And then I'm going to literally walk my feet a few inches at a time up the wall, one left and right, then left and right until I get close enough that I can hook one heel over the top edge of the wall. I'm still holding on with my hands, but now I've got three limbs that I can pull myself up with. And this way I get to use a lot more legs and a lot less arms. My hamstring, really, really powerful. The human hamstring, like it's capable of producing a ton of force. That's really interesting. So, I never thought about that technique method before. <laughs> no? Oh, did I teach you something new? You did. I, I definitely, and I don't bruise my ribs with it because my upper body strength is solid, but I definitely just use the jump, grab on, and essentially perform a muscle up. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I, I tell people, like, a lot of my students want to use that method, and it's not wrong. Like, you do whatever the heck you want. But in the event that this race snuck up on you and they put too many grip obstacles and you realize that maybe the muscle up's not working for you, what's your backup plan? Yeah. You always got to have a plan B and maybe even a plan C. <laughs> but, th but this method is, allows you to save a lot of grip strength because your feet kind of propel you up the wall and your hamstring pulls you up there. And then you can just swing one leg over and then the other. And you come down the wall on the other side in the exact reverse order. Okay. In other words, once you turn around, you still face the wall. You get both your toes pointed up. You get in that deep squat. And then you slide down the wall low enough that you can then step onto the ground. Okay. Interesting. And I'll tell you why you do that. Because in a gym setting, it's usually if it's an outdoor wall, it's usually on concrete. Even if it's indoors, there may be the rubber mats down, but there's concrete under that. And you do not want the repeated force of landing from the top of an eight-foot wall on your hips, knees, or ankles. That's really rough long-term impact force. So, And then in a race, there's just no concrete usually, but the ground is very often uneven, and you could easily sprain your ankle, and you're out of that race. Absolutely. You won't get that medal or that beer. That's no <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> Darn it. What am I racing for? Beer. Maybe a medal, but mostly beer. 
awesome. <laughs> did I did I fully answer everything? I uh yes. Yep. Okay. We're good there. So let's go because I know a ton of what you do, and we kind of talked about how the carryover is to the obstacles in when we before we recorded or before we hit record. So we'll kind of backtrack into it a little bit and go full circle. But let's talk about what you do as far as you like to do a lot of functional training, essentially. But let's first talk about what we hear this words thrown around all the time: functional training. What yes. does it essentially mean to you, though, when you are training your people? To me, it means performing a movement that has a, an everyday carryover. Is it something that apply, that you can apply to everyday life? For example, if you're good at performing a deadlift in the gym, chances are also good that you're going to be able to pick up a 50-pound bag of dog food in your garage without throwing your back out, or even your, your kid, if you have kids, for that matter. It's not... And it's usually most functional movement tends to be it tends to use multiple joints and muscles at the same time. It's usually not so simple as a bicep curl where your, your elbow is the only thing, the only joint moving. So, so it's not simple. It's compound or complex movement. I like that you brought up the deadlift side of things just for the factor of me as a clinician, and I, I know you work some with some physical therapists as well, that we're constantly hearing the, my doctor told me not to squat or my doctor told me not to deadlift. And, and so it's like, my big thing is exactly what you said. Like, how do you plan on picking up that dog food off the floor or the softener salt? It's like just day-to-day -day life. Like whether you call it a deadlift or you just call it like life, you know, you're, you have to lift things up. Absolutely. I mean, deadlift, to people who don't work out as often as you or I, deadlift might just sound like a fancy, fancy name. You know, they might not even know what it is other than that, I think it's an exercise, you know? <laughs> but yeah, certainly lift a lifting pattern. You need to be able to get objects from the floor and lift them to someplace higher, whether that's, you know, picking up something from the floor, putting it in the backseat of your car or the trunk of your car. We're getting something out of the trunk and putting it up on a shelf. You know, it, it, I hate to think that people ha don't know basic technique on that and that they have to, oh, I have to have my son do that. It's too heavy for me. But if they knew the correct technique, they, they probably would be fine and, and not hurt themselves and be able to save a lot of time. And, uh, Anyway. <laughs> like, so, that's that. <laughs> so let's talk about kind of how you go about this functional training. Um, I know you do a lot of what we, as clinicians, what we call multiplanar movement. Essentially, it's moving all different directions. So we're training essentially the functional random movements that we do throughout the day. Um, what does this look like when you're training different people um, as far as training those different, basically training the randomness of life? <laughs> well, a lot of my business is based on in-home clients and some of them have their own equipment. You know, they might have a treadmill, might have a cable machine. Some of them have next to no equipment and I, 
and I bring the equipment to them. So a lot of it is I'll, I'll use things that are, that a can get results and challenge the client that, you know, I want to obviously help the client get to their goal, but it has to be also easy to transport. Can I get it in and out of their house easily? And I find that things like exercise tubing, you know, with the handles attached, kettlebells and sandbags happen to work really, really well and permit multiplanar movement. So just to review for people who, who may not know, so when you walk forward every day, that's considered sagittal plane movement, something that divides your body into left and right halves that could do independent movement. And because we're so used to moving forward every day, when's the last time you walked sideways? Like, like ever, right? And like never, right? So we try, I try to design programs for people that have a little bit of sideways movement, which we would call frontal plane movement, something that you could perform with your back on a wall. This might be a side lunge. This might be a... Uh, lateral raise uh, and then the last the last type would be um, transverse plane which is pretty much anything that involves spinal rotation and or hip rotation those are some of my favorites I like those because they force you to use your whole body the physical therapists that I've worked with and kind of mentored under for about almost five years, I'm going to say, Dr. Cooper, he'll, this is just jumping back because you had mentioned um, like everyday activity and functional, functional movement. <laughs> he once said at a, at a workshop that the best, one of the best tests you can give a new client is to ask them to pick something up off the floor and just watch how they do it. It doesn't have to be super heavy, but bad movement patterns are going to reveal themselves like that. Oh, you round your back. Well, well, that sucks. You can't squat. You know, <laughs> not that not that you would say that, but in your head, you're like, oh my goodness. Okay, this needs some work. <laughs> Sorry. And then going back to um, so different types of directions of movement. So with a sandbag, picking it up off the floor forces you to, it's like, it looks like, if you've never seen one, by the way, it looks like a little duffel bag, but it's got handles on each end and handles of different orientations around the cylindrical part of it. And it's just like the name suggests, filled with sand. And the sand is always shifting a little bit side to side. And so it's never quite the same each time you pick it up. And this is to introduce a little bit of instability, but in a controllable way, controllable environment. So picking up a bag like that off the floor would encourage you to squat. And most people think that might just be bending your knees. It's not just bending your knees. The knees are like the bastard stepchild stuck in between the ankle and the hip. <laughs> They're forced to do a lot of stuff. And so we're trying to alleviate some stress on the knees by proper movement of the ankle and the hip. That might look like getting, sticking your butt back farther when you squat. It generally looks like keeping your back 
straight or in a what we call a neutral spine position, something there's no exaggeration of the normal curvature of the spine, right? The spine is a little bit curved, but um, we're trying not to exaggerate that. And that means that's what we call neutral spine position. So once you would perform a sandbag clean, right? You'll pick it up from the floor, you use the momentum of standing and you'll combine that with an upright row movement. Then you scoop your arms under the bag and the bag looks like it's just flipping over the top of your arms. But really, you moved your arms under the bag. And from here, you're already in a standing position. The bag is now at shoulder height and you can simply extend your arms overhead, assuming that your movement screen tells me that your shoulders are okay going overhead with no pain. And then we would add that overhead press. So that would be what a clean impress would look like. So that really is, is a nice move because it's relatively simple to perform, but it forces you to use upper body, lower body, and core in, in a sequence, essentially. As far as changing the movement to frontal plane movement or um, like a side-to-side -side movement, I might have someone... <clears throat> just go from the floor into the clean position so the bag is at shoulder height. Then I might have them gently step out to the right side and do a right lateral lunge and then unroll the bag so that it touches the floor in front of their right foot. And then push off of the right foot, come back to center position while cleaning the bag. Now this is not something I would start them with, but this is this becomes like a more challenging movement if we're trying to progress exercises. And then, uh, for example, uh, transverse plane movement might look like uh, you have a, a weight bench next to you, and your feet are pointed in the uh, I guess parallel to the bench, same direction as the bench. You might turn a quarter turn toward the bench, step up with one foot, and then completely stand on the bench holding dumbbells. That forces some rotation of the spine and or the hips, and that then qualifies as transverse plane movement. Would I use that a lot? Probably not, probably not that specific movement, but I find that most of my client demographic is over 50. I'll, I'll mention that first. And most of my demographic does not have the best balance. I find that balance is something, if you don't use it, you lose it. And it does not improve with age unless you're training it regularly. It, it only gets worse with age. And I think it'd be safe to say most of us know someone that uh, lost balance. You know, maybe they had a bad hip or they had hip surgery. They lost balance and fell down the stairs and broke something or, or even worse, God forbid. So balance is something that I always try to train. Like if I'm doing 10 exercises with someone for in an hour, I guarantee at least one of them, maybe two of them are going to be balance uh, related. So what methods do you use as far? I know there's a lot of different ways we can train balance. What are some kind of ways that you go about training balance, both statically and dynamically? For training balance, um, I would probably use, <clears throat> I usually start with one of my old staples, which is straight out of the NASM textbook. Uh, and you, you put a 
light to medium tension loop band at the ankles. You have them unlock one knee and try to balance on that knee and extend their leg. It's a, you would call it a lower extremity balance and excursion. But what you're doing is you're balancing on one leg and you're sort of hovering your, your, your other foot off the ground and you go forward and then back to center. You go side and back to center and sort of diagonally back. And this is mostly to strengthen the glute medius, which is a tiny little muscle on both sides of your butt that abducts the hip or moves the leg away from the center of the body. And that tends to be very weak, again, because we never move sideways on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's something that almost always benefits from being made stronger. But you have to put some tension on there. So that would let you strengthen that muscle. And you have to do this on both sides, obviously. You have to take turns uh, with which leg is moving away. But it also challenges the balance of the leg you're standing on. So it kind of kills two birds with one stone. And one problem I'll mention, one problem I find with that is a lot of clients are constantly worried about falling, which is so understandable. I, I read once that you were, humans are born with two fears. I thought this was kind of interesting. The fear of falling and the fear of loud noises, which, and that's one reason babies generally will not crawl downstairs. Okay. They instinctively know that they're going to fall. So they avoid stairs like the plate or they just stop and turn around but uh, that we somehow learn all the other fears as we grow. Anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. So using exercises where we create little bits of instability are one way we, we try to uh, use that natural fear and, and how do we work around that? How can, how can we improve from, from that point? Absolutely. And the, like you said, balance is so key to, you know, as we age, especially to continue challenging, but after any injury that we've, we've had, we definitely need to need to challenge our balance and improve that balance. And it, just in daily function, it's so integral um, to train that balance for, you know, step in an uneven hole. Can you recorrect that rather than falling on your face essentially and right. sure you have those good reactions and um, you know, the good balance reaction is not just balance in general. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, there, uh, I could probably imagine a number of everyday situations where your balance would be challenged. It could be something as, insane as you know slipping on a, a matchbox car that your kid left on the kitchen floor you know and you you may or may not, may or not be able to recover from that hopefully you can <laughs> but I, I found that i found that clients because they're afraid of falling they also maybe you've seen this too they tend to move their head forward because they're always looking down where are my feet and trying to judge their position in space and I try to get them out of that habit and I tell them look you know your head weighs about 10 to 12 pounds right they're like no I didn't know that I'm like yeah you ever seen Jerry Maguire <laughs> the, the little kid the human head weighs eight pounds yes. <laughs> but but still um to, to be serious the 
having that much weight moved forward of your spine is going to throw off your balance. Like it's just a fact. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I found is that be, your head tends to, let me, let me rephrase that. It, it, I found that your eyes don't like to strain themselves looking up into the corners or up as high as possible or down as low as possible. Your head naturally moves so your eyes don't have to work so hard. So the problem is if you focus on something that's on the ground, your head is almost guaranteed to just follow and look down and then it moves forward and then it screws up your balance. So what I'll do is I'll take, I'll show you this very technical piece of equipment here. You ready? Ever seen these dots? (laughs) Sticky dots. Just a couple times. Yep. Right. The little fluorescent circle dots that you can stick on pretty much anything. So what I'll do is I'll find something that's about the eye level of my client when they're standing tall. And then maybe I'll move it up about five, six inches. I'll stick it on the wall that they're facing. Maybe I'll draw a little smiley face on it just to crack them up a little bit. And I'm like, here, look at this. Because if your eyes look at that target, your head will tend to follow your eyes. Then it's going to pretty much stay up and more centered where it's supposed to be. And uh, it's actually remarkably effective so far. It really is. Like when I'm doing, when I'm squatting, doing any Olympic lifting, like I just find same thing, a spot on the wall, a little bit above. And that's what I focus on the entire movement because you know, you'll keep your head up that way if that's where you're focused. Totally. So I had a, a girl I train with, um, she has a bad habit of, she's getting better, but she has a bad habit of just on snatches, she'll look at the ground. It's partially a fear of taking the bar over her head that fast. And so I was on her one time, like, look up. Because I'm like, every time you look down, that's when you miss. <laughs> oh, really? Like, You're taking your body down every single time. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you something about training for the snatch. I... I have a lot of beginner students try my class for the first time and I might have them doing dumbbell snatches. I usually don't call it that because they, a, they don't know what it is. So the word might intimidate them. I just say, pick this dumbbell up from the floor and get it to overhead in one movement. One of the things that I try to have them visualize, and I don't know if you've used this or if this might help is doing that exact movement about six inches in front of a cinder block wall with no gloves on. You see where I'm going with this? Mm -hmm. If you're not careful, you're going to scrape the crap out of your knuckles on the way up. And although you probably have seen that a lot of people's shoulder structure doesn't permit this upright row movement. So while you, you need a little bit of that for the snatch, it can't be like right up against you, right? It's got to be like, I don't know, five, six inches away from your chest. So it's almost like a clever little handicap that it'll remind them, yeah, you want to be away from your body, but not so far mm-hmm. that you're going to whack the wall on the way up. Absolutely. And a lot of times, yeah, um, yeah that's a perfect one for that. There's times with barbell work, and I'm like, I'll either stand there, depending on the person, or put yeah. a PVC pipe in front of them, like don't let the bar hit the pipe, because oh yeah, that small little cue will make them make them keep it back. Yes, that's that's a great that's a great cue. I like that. 
So let's go into the core work that you do with people and kind of talk about essentially functional core work. I know you don't like to do just static planks, things like that. You, add, you like to add a lot of dynamic movement to it and for a very good reason. So let's kind of talk about what you do to train, train the core um, in some of these functional movement methods. Absolutely. Yeah, I, <laughs> my students who know me pretty well by now, they know that I cannot stand rounding of the spine, um, spinal flexion, and therefore I only once in a blue moon will I give them a crunch, a sit-up. I never do V-ups. I really never do sit-ups or V-ups with them, ever, ever. The only crunch variation that I like because it makes you feel like you're working your abdominals is, is a one that I read in a book about, it was all about ab training and it was called the raised elbow crunch. And how you perform this is you lay on your back with your knees bent and your feet flat. Then you have your arms akimbo, like you're yelling at your kids, right? Your hands just on the top of your pelvis on both sides. And then you kind of exaggerate lifting those elbows up off the floor. Now, you and I know that that is a little hard position to, to hold, but what it does is it spreads your shoulder blades. It activates your serratus anterior, which is a muscle that runs along the rib cage. And the result of that is it makes it hard for you to come up more than a few inches. Like you do basically a crunch, but it's a very limited range of motion crunch. <laughs> and the, the, the amount of contraction you get from your abdominals and holding the serratus anterior in that shortened position makes you feel like you're working your, your whole front of your, your core even harder. And it's a lot relatively safer on the spine because it's, it's less movement overall, but you feel like you're working hard. And that's a lot of people like will only do <laughs> exercises that make them feel like they're working hard. You know how that is, <laughs> <laughs> but in general, that's the only, that's the only forward movement or, uh, you know, training the six pack muscle that I will give my students. I don't even like, regular planks. Um, I always do variations on planks. My two of my favorite plank variations are you go into high plank or high push-up position and you have a sandbag slightly to the left of you. You reach under your body with the right arm and drag the bag all the way as far as you can to the right. And then you support with your right hand while you grab the bag with your left and pull it all the way to the left as far as you can. And you just keep going back and forth and back and forth. And this forces you to A, maintain your plank, B, switch between balancing on three points, three points of contact. And obviously the left arm and right arm have to um, you know, alternate with each other. And what I'll often do is find that people will compensate, they will cheat that movement a, if they have their butt too high in the air, I always tell them, all right, squeeze your butt, all right, get your hips down so your body is, in, in fact, in a straight line. And I find that having their feet wider does help them at, at the beginning, like it helps them balance a little better, make them feel more secure, but it's still challenging. And then 
then I'll notice that the next thing they'll do is as they're dragging the bag, if I stand and look down at them, I see their hips shifting slightly to the left. Well, I'm trying to think if I, if I, without actually doing it, I think when you pull the bag to the right, your hips shift to the right. And if you're looking down their spine, you actually see their whole lower body and their pelvis twisting one side higher than the other. So what I'll do if I see their hips shifting side to side is I'll stand right next to them so that they try to move left, but my leg is in the way and all of a sudden they can't move. So they can't cheat the movement. And then they realize, Oh my God, this just got so much harder. And I'm like, I know right? that's the point. Like I'm, I want you to work, but uh, it's funny to have, they have this moment of self discovery and they, you know, they may not have known that that was an actual cheat, but I'm like, no, I'm telling you as a, as your coach, if that's a cheat, don't do that. And most of my students appreciate that. They, they, they don't want, they want something that's relatively simple. It, it can't be too complicated, but they like to get to multitask a teeny bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Focus on three different things, right? It, for me, core training is all about whole body activation. How many different muscles can you actually engage in doing something that maybe was only meant for keeping isometric tension, right? Isometric, for those of you who don't know, is a uh, is means having tension in a muscle without any visible shortening or lengthening. Right? So a crunch is not isometric because in order for a crunch to happen, the muscles on the front of your body have to shorten and the ones along your spine have to lengthen. But a plank is a good example because there's tension and you're stiff through your core, you're stiff through the middle, but you don't see any real movement. And the other one, the other plank variation I love is to take just the furniture mover discs, the sliders, put them under your feet and in a low plank position. So down on your elbows, I have them just purely from elbow and shoulder movement. Well, really shoulder movement. They push themselves back along the floor and then pull themselves forward along the floor. I call it the body saw. It can also be done on a TRX with your feet in the straps slightly off the ground. Right. But uh, it's amazing how hard that is because in order for you to keep your back in a position that doesn't hurt it, you can only go back so far in the movement and then you've got to come forward again. And the whole movement itself then creates some of this instability we were talking about that makes all the muscles tense up and like, I got to protect my back. <laughs> you're damn right you do. <laughs> <laughs> now you're getting it. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, so uh, I kind of approach core training from an how can we, for the most part, how can we stay, keep you in neutral spine, but make the exercises challenging? Um, there's one other one that I'm really quite fond of, and it's done in quadruped position. So you're on all fours, except you're not. Your knees are not on the ground, right? Your knees are directly below your hips but you're up on your toes. So your knees are maybe, you know, three inches off the ground, let's say. And you have one arm below you as if you were in high push-up position. And that's your third point of contact. Now the arm you're not using is reaching straight ahead of you to like a tubing that's attached to something, maybe the squat rack, let's say, and you're doing 
a pull down. Like if it, if you were on a cable column and you were sitting pulling the bar down, it looks just like that, but with one arm. And it's amazing how hard that is to perform while keeping your pelvis level, keeping your knees under your hips, because they tend to migrate backward a little bit. And just seeing how you can stay stable on only three points of contact while you're forcing this movement on one side. That That's really a, that's a fun one to challenge people with. I love that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Do you ever do anything in half kneel? Yes, but I don't use it a lot. There's, there's a stretch, the half kneeling hip flexor stretch I learned. I use that in half kneeling and teach that a lot. But as far as exercises, I generally I'm trying to think what the barbell landmine. Okay. Uh, when you put one end of the barbell into like a sleeve that has a pivot built in. And I sometimes will put people in half kneeling and have them do, I call it an arc press where you go from one shoulder straight overhead and lower to the other shoulder and just alternate. Um, that's something that I would personally use half kneeling for. What, what kinds of stuff have you found for that is good for so that? So what's really fun to test people with because most yeah. people actually can't control it is put them in half kneel, but make their front leg in line with their front foot in line with their back leg. Tandem. So yeah, most people. Oh, it's oh, 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 a good one. Core control, hip control, balance. Um, so it's going to be very challenging for people even just maintain that. And then once they get to the point they yeah. can maintain it, then I'm adding like overhead press, diagonal rotations, all sorts of things. But that's a super fun one to do for everything core. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, start playing with that one. <laughs> I can immediately see how that would be tough. Yeah. I've seen videos <laughs> of like D1 running backs. So super strong people not be able to maintain that position just because people just don't have that control. Oh, I believe that. You know, my DPT once said to me, he goes, athletes cheat movements just like everybody else. They just hide it better mm -hmm. than everybody else. Yeah. You know, because for an athlete to be caught cheating, the coach, if the coach sees that, he knows that you have a weakness there and worst case, he might bench you or sideline you from playing until that weakness is, is improved. So they're re they got really good at hiding stuff. Well, yeah. that the body's really good at compensating too for whatever the body's weaknesses are. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, I totally agree. <laughs> now maybe could I ask you a question about that? Yeah, certainly. So, okay, I'm, I'm thinking off the top of my head, I'm thinking of an exercise like where the body cheats the movement, but I'm not sure how to get a client to fix the compensation. And so that what I'm thinking of is uh, a straight leg deadlift. Okay. Uh, so, sorry, a single leg straight leg deadlift. Okay. Maybe they have a light dumbbell in their uh, their opposite side hand contralateral maybe they don't but uh, if you watch them from the back right there so their trunk is tipping down their their hip becomes the fulcrum of the lever and their back leg is coming up mm -hmm. hopefully about as high as their trunk is low so every they look their body looks like a t right essentially from the side but if you stand behind them 
what will typically happen is the leg they're standing on is the low hip and the leg that's coming up, the whole pelvis shifts and lifts up. And now having tried that myself, like I know that I can use my, my uh, adductors, like my inner thigh muscles to level the pelvis back out. But I'm just wondering why that always happens <laughs> to every single person. Yeah, absolutely. It, it more comes from my understanding. I can't remember who I learned this from, but from my understanding, it's due to a hip rotation weakness. So that leg that you're standing on, it's a little bit weaker. Its rotators are a little bit weaker, so it's naturally going to turn into that weakened or that stronger position as you come down. Okay. Um, another thing, too, is some of it's just a body awareness issue, the body just not truly knowing where it's supposed to be. Um, so sometimes if you um, – I call them airplanes, have put someone in that position and have them just rotate kind of into like over exaggerate that neutral position and then come back to um, a neutral position, have them just kind of rotate through there, supported. So okay. holding on to a rig, a door frame, something like that, and just have so them like learn where that neutral is. All right. So stay in the position where they kind of look like a T, but then actively pull down the pelvis until both. PSIS or level? Correct. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's either, it can be one or both as far as more of a rotator weakness or just the body not knowing where it is actually in space. Okay. Cool. That makes sense. Thank you. You're welcome. Guy <laughs> <I> can help. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, so we kind what of, else you got? I was just going to say, kind of covered a lot of things all over the place, but kind of to bring it all full circle a little bit with the OCR training that you do, thinking about these functional movements, the, the squats, the deadlifts, um, we didn't even get into the kettlebell stuff that much yet, but just thinking about these functional movements, how does that carry over to the, the tasks that are required in OCR? Ooh, where to start on that one? <laughs> well, okay, so for, for example, you need hip extension to get out of a squat position. You need to be able to. So, okay, so an, an obstacle that you would use hip extension in a, in a major way would be a wall climb, would be going from an astagrass squat, if I can say that, uh, a super deep squat on the Atlas carry, which is where you pick up a, a cement stone that weighs between 80 to 120 pounds. Um, it only has to be carried about 20 feet, but getting it off the ground is, is no easy feat, especially when it's covered with mud. But you would need to move your hips forward to get into a, a standing position again. So practicing squats and deadlifts will just make that movement pattern like second nature for you. And as I, as I mentioned, you, you would use that in, in a ton of uh, obstacles, even the tire flip. There's now Spartan has a tire flip. That's 200 pound tire for women. And I think 410 or 405 for men, you only need to flip it twice. Um, there's actually a trick to that. And I'll try to come back to that in a second. 
but in, in training for that type of stuff, yes, you do absolutely. At some point you need to actually do the obstacle. You, you need a wall to climb. You need a tire to flip. You need a, an Atlas stone to pick up or something that can be deadlifted from that position. So you don't have an Atlas stone. You can definitely hook up a landmine barbell attachment where all the weight plates are on one end. You just won't be able to challenge your grip as you come out of this deadlift in moving your hips forward and standing up, but whatever you can, you can, you can challenge your grip with several other things. Um, what was I going to, there was a trick. Oh, the tire flip. So the trick with the tire flip, it helps to be able to squat with your feet really wide apart to, to perform this deadlift. So get into your start position. What people don't know is you have far more leverage flipping that tire. The more that you lean over the center of the tire versus if you try to stand straight up, standing at the edge of the tire. And fortunately, all those tires, heavy as they are, are extremely low, flat, and wide. So as long as you can get a good hand grip under the tire, you pretty much lean as far forward over the center hole as you can without letting go of the tire. And you will see that you will actually prop up the edge of the tire. Then you can start to pull, and then you can drive it up with your knee the rest of the way to get it where you want. If the tire was vertically taller, while laying on the ground, you're going to have a problem. <laughs> but uh, they, they've been pretty consistent using these particular Yokohama tires. Uh, they're very low, flat, and wide. So that works very well. Absolutely. Although sometimes the trick is actually getting your hands underneath them, depending on how the tread is and, and how the ground is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've tried doing that both on concrete and on kind of like a loose gravel and the gravel's a little bit easier to get the hands under. And then you have to sort of feel around like, where's the, the big dub on the tread, right? <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, as far as other types of OCR training and, and functionality, uh, grip, grip training is, is really, really big in obstacle racing. And of course, you want to be able to uh, rock climbing, indoor rock climbing or outdoor even, is a fantastic way to regularly train the muscles of the forearms, which then control your grip. I'm always teaching people when their arms are on fire from doing too much grip, I'm always teaching them that prayer stretch, mm -hmm. you know, or upside down. Uh, then if you don't have a rock climbing wall in your gym, I'm kind of fond of movements like the weight plate pinch grip carry. So it's a farmer's carry done in a low position where this is all you've got to hold on to the plates. And then it becomes a question of how much weight can you carry that way without dropping and how far can you walk before you have to drop. Now using the bumper plates actually work really well, the CrossFit bumper plates, because 10 pound plates may be super duper light um, even for female uh, athletes. So what I'll have them do often is pinch two 10 pounders together because they're still pretty thin. So even though they might have smaller hands than I do, they can usually get their hands around that. But either way, it's just training. It's just a class. It's not the actual race. So if you have to put it down, worst case, you put it down and just kind of pick up from where you left off. 
I feel that for guys, a good starting weight would be a 25 pound bumper plate in each hand, but you should work up to a 45. Not only is it heavy, but it's freaking wide. <laughs> if you don't have pretty, pretty long fingers, it, it is really hard to hold that. The other one that I feel is really good for grip is the bottoms up kettlebell carry. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause the mass of the kettlebell, unlike a dumbbell is centered away from the actual handle you're holding. And, uh, you can, you'll, you'll, if you try it, you'll walk a certain distance and all of a sudden the thing feels like it's going to flip down and smash you in the face. So I'm always reminded of you, make sure that if it falls, it falls away from your face. But, uh, just, just the slight up and down movement of walking. And I tell people to walk slow. Sometimes they're just, you know, my alpha athletes, as I call them, uh, the overachievers, they love to just walk as fast as they can. I'm like, no, 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 prolong your torture. Don't rush through it. So that type of stuff. Did that answer the question? It did. And, uh, I had a coach one time. This was years ago. I can't remember the weight I had. I think it was either a 15 or a 25 pound bumper plate, pinch okay. carry. He had another guy that was training with me gave him two of the metal five pound plates back to back in each hand. Oh, because they're super slippery, right? They're super slippery. So I had oh ten fives. He had essentially tens in each hand, but metal back to back. So he had to pinch extra hard. It was entertaining. That is hard to hold. Oh my God. You're not kidding. So if you're going to challenge, it's light, but it's slippery. I'll write that down. I, I thought of that in the past, but I, somehow I always forget and I never actually do it. I'm going to make sure I do it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Coach Brad, if someone wants to reach out to you, has questions about training at all, how can they find you? Sure. So you can directly email me at sims.brad. It's S-I-M-S dot B-R-A-D at gmail.com. My website is bradsimscpt as in certified personal trainer.com. And that'll have also my phone number where you can call or text me. Um, if anyone is interested or regularly does Spartan races or some longer races, I actually have written a six month long program for people who would like to start training in advance for the Spartan ultra beast, which is a 32 mile 62 obstacle race. And that is considered one of the absolute hardest ones in the OCR world. And I have written what I think is a really nice program because it's based on not only the exercises training for it, but running technique is built in there. Stretches are built in there. Nutrition is built in there. It's pretty complete. And uh, it's a nice program. And I've used it myself, so I know it works. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Coach, for your time. I really appreciate you uh, taking this time today to talk to me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And that concludes this episode of Highly Functional. I truly appreciate the time you spend to listen to myself and my colleagues share with you how to become highly functional individuals and how to be highly functional individuals. If you learned great information from this, I would love for you to share it with your friends and help them become highly functioning individuals as well. Until next time, go out and be 
highly functional.